Let's open our Bibles tonight to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter number 20. 1 Samuel, chapter number 20. feels a little strange not be preaching on the book of Amos on a Sunday night. Amen. We've been preaching there for uh, about five weeks now, but we, we switched things up. We said this morning that was to keep the devil and the Baptist guessing. Amen. And uh, we preached on the book of Amos this morning. I appreciate the goodness of the Lord and uh, how He meets with us. Amen. Can you imagine God wanting to meet with you and me? I mean, listen, there, there's there's a lot of folks that ought to want to meet with me that don't want to meet with me, and there's a lot of folks that don't want to meet with me, and I can understand why they don't want to meet with me, uh, but I would never imagine God would want to meet with me. Amen? Who am I? But uh, well, praise the Lord for what He does. What is man that thou art mindful of Him? Uh, listen, there, there's there's people in this world that are that they don't even know where you and I live, where we're at, and and I don't. I'm not talking about our address. I'm talking about our way of life. Uh, we're, we're below their radar, amen? But can you imagine that the God of glory knows what you and I do and how we feel and, and knows where to find us, amen? And uh, just praise His name this evening, amen? First Samuel chapter number 20 uh, tonight, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. I really just have a thought that I want to sort of share with you tonight that I've had on my heart, uh, but it's going to take a few verses to get there. I want us to get the context. So let's begin reading in verse number 1, 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse number 1. The Word of God says that David fled from Naoth in Ramah, or in Ramah, excuse me, and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is mine iniquity? What is my sin before thy father that he seeketh my life? Now, you remember, Jonathan is the son of King Saul. It says in verse 2 that he, that Jonathan said unto him, God forbid, thou shalt not die. Behold, my father will do nothing, either great or small, but that he will show it me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. In other words, Jonathan said, if Saul was going to kill you, I'd know about it. Why would he kill you, David? David swore moreover and said, Thy father certainly knoweth that I have found grace in thine eyes. And he saith, Let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, there is but a step between me and and death. David was right about that. That's true for me and you too. Amen. There's just a step between us and death. We better be ready for it. Verse 4, Then said Jonathan unto David, Whatsoever thy soul desireth, I will even do it for thee. David said unto Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king at meat. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field under the third day at even. If thy father at all miss me, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me that he might run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he say thus, it is well, thy servant shall have peace. But if he be very wroth, then be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore thou shalt deal kindly with thy servant, for thou hast brought thy servant into a covenant of the Lord with thee, notwithstanding if there be in me iniquity, Slay me thyself, for why shouldst thou bring me to thy father? Jonathan said, Far be it from thee, for if I knew certainly that evil were determined by my father to come upon thee, then would not I tell it thee? Then said David to Jonathan, Who shall tell me? Or if what if thy father answer thee roughly? So in other words, what if, what if you come to see that Saul does want to kill me? How am I going to find out? Jonathan said unto David, Come and let us go out into the field. And they went out both of them into the field. And Jonathan said unto David, O Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded my father about tomorrow any time or the third day, and behold, if there be good toward David, and I then sin not unto thee and show it thee, the Lord do so, and much more to Jonathan. But if it please my father to do thee evil, then I will show it thee and send thee away, that thou mayest go in peace, and the Lord be with thee as he hath been with my father. And thou shalt not only, while yet I live, show me the kindness of the Lord, uh, that I die not. But also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, every one from the face of the earth. And David kept that covenant. You remember, he restored Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear again because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and thou shalt be missed because thy seat will be empty. And when thou hast stayed three days, then thou shalt go down quickly and come to the place where thou didst hide thyself when the business was in hand, and shalt remain by the stone Ezel. 
and I will shoot three arrows on the side thereof, as though I shot at a mark. Behold, I will send a lad, saying, Go find out the arrows. If I expressly say unto the lad, Behold, the arrows are on this side of thee, take them, then come thou, for there is peace to thee, and no hurt as the Lord liveth. But if I say thus unto the young man, Behold, the arrows are beyond, beyond thee, go thy way, for the Lord hath sent thee away. And that was merely a sign, a way to, to communicate without having to speak to David uh, whether or not Saul had answered roughly and, and desired to kill him. It says in verse 23, And as touching the matter which thou and I have spoken of, behold, the Lord be between thee and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon was come, the king sat him down to eat meat. And the king sat upon his seat as at other times, even upon a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side, and David's place was empty. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this blessed time to be with your people tonight. Pray that you'd take the Word of God, that you'd stir hearts. Lord, we are not here by accident, but by providence tonight. Lord, you have a, you have a purpose in our being here. You have a message for us to hear. Lord, there is a response that we are to give. We have a responsibility to that response that we might respond according to thy word, uh, Lord, appropriately. I pray you'd help us tonight in the preaching of thy word, but Lord, also and especially help us in the hearing. Lord, that begins from me and everyone else as well. May we hear the message that you have for us, and may we be drawn closer unto you through it. Lord, we'll be sure to thank you. Father, we commit all these things in this service tonight into your care. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we read a lot of scripture there, and I appreciate your patience as we read through it. I wanted to give us a context to a very short, but to me very captivating statement that is made all the way down in verse number 25. Look at verse 25 with me. The Bible says that the king sat upon his seat. Now, you can sort of imagine in your mind they're uh, having a festival. They are eating together. This is a religious festival, but it is also a political event. The king is sitting in court uh, with his with his uh, with his people, the uh, servants of his, his court gathered around him, and uh, it's almost like you're watching a camera pan down. You know what I mean? It, it, you you look through that camera shot, you look in scene, and what do you see? You see in verse 25 that the king sat upon his seat, as at other times, even upon a seat by the wall. It's not unusual. A lot of times where it says by the wall, a lot of times a king would have a uh, throne that would be recessed into the wall. He would sit in a in a different place. He would uh, be denoted as a person of prominence above anyone else around there. And so there Saul sitting upon his throne, kingly and regal, as the people had seen him many times. Then the camera would pan down a little bit, and there you'd see Jonathan standing there, uh, that young man who had such courage and such valor and such love for the Lord and the Lord's servant. You would see sort of the the apprehensive look in his eyes, a, a nervousness to his to his uh, demeanor, maybe a, a tick to his movements, and and you could tell something would be on his mind. You could tell he's worried about. Something, And then you'd scroll a little further down and you'd see Abner, uh, that old war horse, the man that had stood uh, beside Saul in battle after battle. And then as the camera panned down, all of a sudden you'd see an empty seat. That seat is the place where the young man, the warrior king David, would have sat. It was an appointed place of prominence, of service, that the king had appointed him, but that God had afforded him. And as you scroll down through the roster, you'd find not David, not the man that one day would sit upon that throne over Israel, but you'd instead, and it sounds almost sad to say, doesn't it? All you'd find there would be an empty seat. Now, I think if you and I are students of the Bible, we understand why David did what he did, why he was not there. We understand how God used it. But can I just preach to you for a few moments tonight on the empty seat? You know, just as David had a place that God had put him, can I say every one of us has a place that God has put us? Can I say that if we don't do anything else with our life, let it never be said that our seat was empty. 
I'm not talking about a pew at a church. I'm not talking about your seat at work. But I'm talking about the will of God for your life and mine. Let it never be said that when you look for us to be in the will of God, that's not where we were, that we had abandoned our post and our seat was empty. I thought about David and this seat and what all it represented. Uh, Of course, positions and places and seats in the Bible had great significance. I think the fact that God emphasizes that Saul was sitting in his seat by the wall, that denotes that that seat was God's seat. Saul had to be a Baptist. Somebody say amen to that. That was his seat. Amen. That was where he sat. And undoubtedly, it was a king's throne. It was a place that he had found himself really not of his own choosing. He didn't go looking for the throne. The throne came looking for him. But it wasn't long after he occupied the throne that he allowed the throne that is in his heart uh, to be uh, vacated by the Lord and set up by his own carnal desires. And Saul made some bad decisions in his life that ultimately led to his demise and his destruction. But that seat there that he was sitting on, that was the king's seat. It represented a lot of things, but you know David's seat represented some things as well. What did it mean, Brother Ken, for David to sit in that seat? Well, I thought about three things. This is just sort of a little introduction, all right? So don't get nervous when even in the message. But I thought to myself that that seat represented three things. You know what that seat represented, number one? It represented his resolve. Now, as we go through this passage, if you have never read this portion of Scripture, you might be sort of asking yourself a few questions like, who's Saul? Who's Jonathan? Why are they upset at David? Why are they uh, devising this elaborate scheme whereby they can understand what Saul's intentions are? But if you're a student of the Bible, you know exactly why all this is happening. You know the storied history of the animosity and malice that King Saul felt and jealousy in his heart towards the young man David. You... uh, no doubt would know that David as a young man had been elevated and exalted to a place of prominence and respect in the kingdom through the slaying of the giant Goliath and through the subsequent uh, success in the military campaigns that he was involved in. You'd probably remember how that after the battles they would sing songs and those songs would say something like this. They'd say, Saul has slain his thousands. King Saul, he's slain his thousands. And I'm sure Saul liked that, but he didn't like the second verse. Because the second verse said, but David his ten thousands. And you'd maybe remember how that David's wife, Michal, the, the, the daughter of Saul, how that she despised and sought to sow discord between her father-in-law and her husband because of her uh, hatred of her husband, David. And you'd know how that there were times in David's early life where on several occasions Saul tried to kill him. Saul took javelin spears and threw them at him. You probably, if you study your Bible, you remember the occasions when David had opportunity to slay Saul in the cave and refused to do do it because he'd not put his hand to God's anointed. I'm saying this, if you read your Bible, you know that that seat was not an easy place to sit for David. There were probably plenty of times that he thought to himself, boy, it'd be just easy just to cut and run. But you see, that seat to him, it represented his resolve. He had refused to give up and leave the palace even under intense persecution. I'm sure there's been times that you have thought and felt this, and there's sure enough been times that I've thought and felt it, where you've said, well, I don't want to be anywhere where I'm not wanted. You ever thought that before? I'm not going to be anywhere where I'm not wanted. I learned really early in ministry, if you feel that way about ministry, you won't be there long. Amen. <laughs> the, uh, I ain't going to be somewhere that I'm not wanted. And probably David, uh, there were times that entered his mind, why am I doing this? Why am I serving Saul the king? Why am I spending time laboring in this way? Uh, and yet he understood that he was not there by accident, but by providence. And he had determined in his heart to be where God wanted him to be, how God wanted him to be, for as long as God wanted him to be, and there were probably days that it was nothing but pure meanness and orneriness that kept David where he was at. Basically saying this, you know what, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to just pick up and leave and take the easy path out. I think that seat, it represented his resolve, that he was willing to stay in a place he believed to be the will of God, even when it was not easy. Can I ask you a question? Please don't think I mean this in in an ugly spirit, but whoever told you the will of God was going to be easy? 
Why, where'd we get this idea that, man, it's always going to be easy serving God? Somehow we start serving God and a mile or two down the road we weren't run into a little trouble and all of a sudden we doubt everything in the darkness that we thought we knew in the light and all of a sudden everything that we swore was the will of God a month ago now we're ready to give up on. I'm just saying whoever told you the will of God was going to be easy. The fact is there'll be times that it's going to take some resolve. It's going to take some resolve. Uh, in, if we're going to stay in that seat. So it reminds me, it represents His resolve. Number two, you know what it represents to me? It represents His responsibility. You know, nowhere in the Bible, and I thought carefully about this as I thought about the life of David in this passage, I don't know that there's anywhere in the Bible where it ever says that David wanted to be king. I can't recall a single time, either in the book of Psalms or in all the history of David's life, where it ever just says that David wanted to be king. Just as uh, the anointing horn of oil uh, was not something that Saul went looking for, it was something that came looking for Saul. In the same way, Brother Charlie, he didn't. David never asked to be king. One day the prophet Samuel shows up at his house and goes through the seven other brothers, amen, thinking that they're more likely to be king. And, and David, he was so unlikely to be the king that his, his daddy Jesse didn't even bring him out of the field in order for him to be considered. He thought there's no way that David is going to be the king. And whenever uh, David walked in, even Samuel had his doubts. He said, how could this be it? And the Lord spoke Samuel's heart and said, hey, that's my king. David was surprised, man. David's brothers was surprised. David was surprised. David's daddy was surprised. Everybody, Samuel was surprised. About the only person that wasn't surprised by that was the Lord. <laughs> and the Lord says, hey, listen, I don't look on the outward appearance as man looketh, but I look on the inward heart. God chose him. But I'm saying this. I don't find anywhere where, where David ever said, I want to be king. So why was he sitting in that seat? Well, he was there because his king had commanded him to come and minister him after he had slain the giant Goliath. He was there. Why did he stand at the front of the battle? He was there because his nation had called upon him to stand at the front of the battle. Why was he staying in a place where he was hated and loathed and imperiled day in and day out? Because that uh, that horn with the anointing oil in it, that wasn't just a political thing, man, not in the land of Israel. That was a divine thing. God had chosen him as king. God had set him on a path. He didn't choose that, but God chose it for him. And that seat was his responsibility. I'd say it this way. He understood that God had placed him there and he was to be there as long as God wanted him to be there. I would go a step further. You know, I don't know if there was anybody in the king's court that could be as great an influence upon Saul as David was. Now, somebody might say, well, Jonathan was a godly young man. You know, that's true, but a prophet's not without honor, save in his own country and amongst his own kin. You know, I bet David had a better... Had he been willing to stick in, I bet David could have had a better door of utterance to Saul than even Jonathan could have. I'm saying this, that to David, it was his responsibility to be there. You got any responsibilities in life? If you're a child of God, you have responsibilities. I have responsibilities. So that seed, it represented his responsibility. But you know, it represented a third thing to me. What kept him in that seat? Well, probably if he was like you or me, just maybe about six or eight ounces of meanness probably kept him in that seat. And it, it represented his resolve, his stick-to-itiveness, his unwillingness to, to cut and run from a hard situation. Then no doubt his responsibility, him being in mind that he was placed in, in Saul's court for a reason. God desired to use him to be an influence and a witness in the life of a troubled and a floundering king. That probably kept him there. But then, you know, I think probably one of the things that kept him there was this. I think it, was, it represented his reliance upon God. I think essentially this is what he was saying you know, I'm here and if God chooses to protect me from King Saul, he's well able to do so. But if God chooses for me to perish in this palace, then I'm more than willing to do so. And whatever my life is, whatever turn it takes, whatever uh, whatever uh, result it brings, I'm just trusting it to God, believing that God is in control. Can I ask you something? Do you trust God tonight? Do you trust Him? I, I, I don't believe we ought to trust Him because it makes us real spiritual. I don't believe we ought to trust Him because it makes people uh, pleased with us or proud of us. I don't think we ought to trust Him because it's always the easiest road to go. I think we ought to trust Him for one simple reason, because He's trustworthy. I don't think there's anyone better in your life for you to trust. I think you can trust Him better than you can trust your own self, your own judgment. I, I know you can trust Him better than you can trust me. 
I believe you can trust Him better than whatever friends and counselors you might have. And David, he had stayed in that. And a lot of people would have said, David, what are you doing there? The king wants to kill you. The king wants to slay you. He has openly declared his intent to destroy your life. David, you're crazy. You're a lunatic for staying there. You're a madman for staying there. And David probably no doubt would have said, if God chooses to take my life by the hand of my king, then so be it. But whatever seemeth good unto the Lord, let him do it unto me. That seat, no doubt, it represented his reliance upon God. And for many months and for some years, David had occupied that seat. But here in our passage this evening, you know what? We come to that seat and we find it empty. What is it that could make a man so bound in devotion to God, so brave that he'd be willing to stare down a giant? What could make a man like that run from the place of service and calling? When I read through this passage, there's really only a few things that I could think could make a man like that quit. And I think there are things you and I need to be cautious of. Because let me tell you something, the devil wants us to quit. The devil wants us to quit. I'm talking to children of God tonight. If you're here and lost, let me tell you, Jesus loves you. He desires to save you and change your life and give you a new life, and take away your guilt and your shame, and give you joy in the Lord. But I understand on a Sunday night, most if not everybody in this room, we know the Lord is our Savior. And let me say to you all tonight, the devil wants us to quit. Uh, really, if he, can, if he can make us quit, he, it's just as good as him destroying us. He's robbed us of that which is most meaningful, and that which is the grand purpose of our life. If he can just get us to leave our seat of service and devotion to God, our place in the will and work of God, and He's done what He set out to do. What could cause us to do that? Well, think with me about these three things. I won't take very long tonight. I just want to share with you my thought. I think about the reasons that David left that seat. And the first one becomes apparent to me. When you read through our text tonight, a lot of it is really involved with David and Jonathan talking about whether Saul intends to kill him. And then a good portion of it is involved with with, with David and Jonathan swearing a covenant to each other. And essentially, Jonathan saying, I promise I'll tell you the truth. And David saying, well, I promise if God puts me on that throne, I'll be good to your children. I'll be good to your descendants. Uh, then there is a portion of it where they're sort of devising a way for Jonathan to communicate whatever the news is to David. But you know what all that really is about? Every bit of it is about the fact that Saul wants to kill David. There is one reason, primarily, that he left that seat, and that's because Saul wanted to kill him. You know, it's interesting that it was not David's sin that caused him to flee that seat, but rather he fled, number one, because of the sin of others. He left, Brother Fred, the place that God had put him because he was looking at Saul instead of looking at the sovereign God that sits on the circle of the earth. I thought about Saul's hatred, his sin, his disobedience, and his is a life that is marked by disobedience. Uh, Saul did some good things in his life, but you won't ever talk about them, neither will I, because everything is overshadowed by the great mistakes and, and disobedience of his life. We think of him as a failed king. We think of him as, as symbolic of what happens when man chooses his own leadership instead of leaving the matter to God. He started off well, but it didn't take long, and he made a mess of things. But you know, to David, Saul was so much more. Saul was his king. I think that we could probably say without, without overstating the matter, I think we could say that Saul was in some ways like a father to David. At least that's the way that David talks about him. He talks about being his son. He talks about Saul being his father later on when they have conversations outside of the cave. And David talked about Saul and called him God's anointed. I, it's interesting. I've heard so many people preach about not criticizing a preacher uh, from that passage. You ought not uh, lay your hand against God's anointed. Let me say, I'm anti-criticizing preachers, in case you don't know. Amen. I just, I just think it's a bad idea, amen. Uh, but, but I don't really think that passage is about criticizing preachers. There's one anointed, right? The, the anointed is not you, it's not me, it's not the pastor you grew up under, it's not your favorite TV preacher. The anointed one is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah, amen. He is the anointed one. I really think that's what that's about. I, I think we gotta be careful lest we put men on a pedestal uh, that God never set uh, for them to, uh, to preside upon. 
But David, I mean, he had a great love for Saul. Could you imagine how much it broke his heart when Saul treated him the way that he did? I wrote a few things down here. Let me share them with you. I thought about it and I thought, you know, no doubt David was agitated by Saul's sin. No doubt he was afflicted by Saul's sin. No doubt, we, let me just use this word, no doubt it disappointed him to see a man that he looked up to, that he thought of as a father, that he thought of as God's chosen one, that he thought of as a man that loved him and cared for him, that hated him with such vitriol that he literally, in the middle of David ministering unto him in song, would pick up a spear and heave it at him. And on multiple occasions, I've been mad at some of y'all enough once or twice throw a spear at you, but listen, you've been mad enough to me to catch it and throw it back, amen? But, But I'm talking about on multiple occasions. This wasn't no heat of the moment thing. Saul wanted him dead. And you know that had to grieve David. You know that had to bother him. You know, I've seen people serving God and living for the Lord and doing right and get completely out because somebody disappointed them. You ever seen that? People that got excited, man, and and they just they wanted to live for God and they had somebody that they thought of as somebody that lived for God, somebody that was above reproach, somebody that was beyond mistakes, and then all of a sudden that person sins and that person messes up and that, 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 that initial person that had their hope in them, their whole world comes crashing down because they are afflicted, they are agonizing, they are agitated by another person's sin. Sometimes it can be disappointment that can lead us. You know, the remedy to that, is never to be serving because of what somebody else is doing. But instead, keep your eyes on Jesus, looking unto Jesus. You know why? Because He's not just the author of our faith. He's the finisher of it, too. He didn't just start this thing out, man. He's got the wherewithal to see us through. And and, and here's he, he is the perfecter of our faith. He is what our faith looks like uh, if it was what God desired it to be. He's the author. He's the finisher of our faith. So we ought to look unto Him. So I thought, you know, probably David was agitated by Saul's sin. And then I thought this, you know, no doubt. And, and this is sort of akin to progression, right? Uh, first, you're disappointed in someone. And then after that initial shock goes away, here's what you are. You're disgusted by that person. You know what I mean? I've been there. I've looked at men of God that I looked up to and, and they've made mistakes and they, they've messed up. And at first, man, I was hurt by it. But then I got to thinking, you know, I know what this thing of ministry is like and there's no excuse for the choices they're making. And pretty soon I get mad about the sin that they're involved in. And I'm disgusted by it. And that's probably how David felt. I think he probably, not only was he agitated by Saul's sin, he was probably appalled by Saul's sin. He probably thought to himself, what business does a king on God's throne, the first king on God's throne, have in in spending his time hunting down a righteous servant of the Lord. You know, later on there'd be times that David would say things to Saul like this, what am I but a flea? Or another place he would say, what am I but a dead dog? David thought that Saul's behavior was beneath Saul's station. And he made clear that it was not befitting a king to act and behave the way that Saul was behaving. You know, sometimes, if we're not careful, we'll let the, not only that we're disappointed in other people's sin, but we'll look around at a world that is, that, that it seems is burning down around us. We'll look at a world that is in the bond and gall of iniquity. And if we're not careful, we'll let that discourage us so much that we'll abandon our seat. We'll start looking at other people and their lack of, of, uh, of, of investment and their lack of care and their lack of dedication. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get this syndrome where all we do is sit around with a critic's pen in our hand talking about how broken people are and how messed up people are. Listen, I've met folks like this. I've read their emails. I've listened to their diatribes where they sit around talking about how a church ain't a place but nothing but hypocrites in it. Uh, listen, uh, why don't you go ahead and come on down. We'll add one more to the book. Amen. And people say, well, all them church people, I've been around that. I've seen that before. Hey, listen, that's part of your problem. You had your eyes on that instead of on the one that church is all about. You spend enough time around church and it don't take much at all. You'll see stuff that'll disgust you. If you're not careful, it'll turn you into a cynic. Before long, a a cynic turns into a scorner. And before long, a scorner turns into a scoffer. How many people allowed negativity, the negative bug, to bite them and started to pick apart and critique every little thing in the house of God? Listen, you won't survive around here like that. You won't survive in any church like that. 
uh, pretty soon you'll decide that you can do everything better than whoever's doing it. And you'll decide that nobody cares and nobody's doing it right. And it won't take long. That negative spirit will eat you alive. And you'll be one of these crowd that sit at home talking about how the church they have in their recliner is better than what's going on down at the house of God. Say, so how do people get messed up like that? They get messed up like that when they get their eyes on other people's mistakes and sins and get their eyes off of Jesus. I got news for you, man. Ain't none of us perfect. If we, if we were, we wouldn't need any of this. <laughs> Ain't none of us perfect, man. And if you're not careful, listen, you will allow being appalled by people's disappointment, by their mistakes, by their sin, by the things that they do, you will use that as an excuse to abandon your seat. And that's exactly what David did. He not only was agitated by Paul, Saul's sin, and he, he was appalled by Saul's sin, but because that David abdicated because of Saul's sin. Pretty soon he got out because he was watching what others were doing. But you know, I, I had a thought that occurred to me, and this isn't really in, in, in the text, it's just, it's just a principle of Scripture, alright? It's just something we know from knowing the rest of the Bible, and that's this. David was agitated by Saul's sin. He was probably disappointed. He was probably hurt to see Saul do what he did. And he was appalled by Saul's sin. No doubt he was, he was righteously indignant over the disobedience of Saul. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with either of those first two things. It's okay to be disappointed in people. Sometimes people are going to disappoint you. It's okay. In fact, it's not just okay. As long as it's done in a proper scriptural perspective, it's a godly thing to be appalled by sin. We should be upset about sin. It's just, listen, if you're more upset about everybody else's sin than you are your sin, you're doing it wrong. Amen? It ought to be that the person whose sin you are most disturbed by is your own sin. But we all look around at a world that's broken and it grieves us. We all look around at a society that seems to have lost its mind and certainly has lost its spiritual compass and we're all grieved by that. There's nothing wrong with that. But the third thing is what's wrong. David abdicated. You know, though, that didn't change one thing. You listening carefully? David though he abdicated because of Saul's sin, David was not absolved by Saul's sin. Funny thing about it, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's you, that's me. We ain't there to answer for anybody but us. See, here's the reality. David had to answer to God for David. He wasn't answering to God for Saul. Saul was going to answer for Saul. And at the end of the day, whatever whatever sin that Saul had committed, whatever mistakes Saul had committed, whatever disappointments that Saul had committed, at the end of the day, it didn't change what David's responsibility was. Can I tell you something? It don't matter what our excuses are. Because the Bible says on the judgment, uh, the day of the judgment seat of Christ, that all things will be laid bare before His eyes with whom we have to do. It doesn't matter what the excuses are. You ain't going to answer for them, but you are going to answer for you. Now listen, that means, guess what? You ain't got to answer for them. People mess up, they make mistakes, they do the wrong thing, that ought to break our heart, but at the end of the day, God's not going to hold us accountable for that. But you mark her down. He will hold us accountable for us. Nobody else is going to stand there and have to answer for what we've done, but you mark her down. We most assuredly will. So I thought about David. You know, he got out because of the sin of others. How many people have you and I seen throughout the years that have got out, that have left their seat because of the sin of others? But then I thought about a second reason. Now, in a broad sense, it was because of Saul's sin. But in a very, very narrow and distinct sense, he got out because it was part of his plan. I wrote it down this way. Some folks uh, leave their seat empty because of the sin of others, and others, they leave their seat empty because of scheming. Uh, you could also probably put this word in here, if you like it better, self-reliance. As we said, they had sort of a plan hatched out. Uh, David understood this principle, that if Saul was plotting to kill him, then Saul would be upset in thinking that David had perhaps escaped. And David, in not appearing at that feast, would be able to use that as sort of an acid test, as a test of Saul's disposition to try to determine whether Saul had imminent plans to kill David or not. In other words, if they go to the seat and David's gone that upset Saul, he'd think, maybe I've lost my opportunity. That presented a problem, though. If David's not there and Jonathan finds out this info, there ain't no email. They ain't going to text him the answer. So how are they going to find out 
whether or not... How is David going to find out what Saul's intentions are? So they developed this plan that David is supposed to wait there in that place where they're meeting. And on a certain day, uh, Jonathan's going to come out with his servants and, and he's going to be out as though he's just out practicing archery and, and he's going to draw a, an arrow and fire it off into the distance and he's going to tell the boy about where it landed. When that fellow goes out there and gets somewhat in the proximity and, and hollers back and says, "Have I found? am I close to it? Jonathan says this, David... If Saul does not want to kill you, I'm going to tell him to come back a little closer and he'll find the arrow there. But if David does want to kill you, I'm going to tell him to go further. And, and David, it's going to look to, like, I'm, like I'm doing this or like I'm doing this to him. But David, really, what I'm doing is I'm telling you either come back or go farther. See, this was all part of the plan that he wouldn't be in the seat on that day. But can I ask you this question? It was part of David's plan. But I reckon wonder if it was ever part of God's plan that he not be in that seat on that day. Has it ever dawned on you that it could be that your plans or my plans may forfeit for us God's plans in our life? You know why some folks get out? Because they're too busy trying to get ahead to stay in. Some folks, they get out because very simply they try to take the matter into their own hands. You know what David, David tried to do a couple things that were basically, basically fool's errands. Number one, he tried to discern the future. He tried to say, uh, Jonathan, me and you, we're going to figure out what's in the heart of Saul. But you know, the reality is this, he had no way of knowing what was in Saul's heart. Even if all of his plan was worked out just exactly, and it was, it worked out just exactly the way that he had hoped that it did. And you know what it told him? Absolutely nothing. You know what he knew before he started this whole scheme? He knew Saul hated him. We can read it in the text. He says, your father wants to kill me. Your father hates me. Your father wants to destroy me. And Jonathan's saying, I'm not sure about that, David. I don't know. If I knew, I would tell you. But David's saying, no, I know. He wants to kill me. Three days later, and a whole bunch of headache, and a whole bunch of, of, of hullabaloo, and what do they know? They know Saul hates him. Boy, that really moved the needle, didn't it? You know what he tried to do? He tried to do something that none of us can do. He tried to divine and discern the future and tried to guess what was going to happen next. Can I tell you something? At the end of the day, ain't none of us got a crystal ball. Ain't none of us knows what. In fact, it always, it always sort of, Brother Ken, I always laugh about it. And I understand people get, people get in the bond of, 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 of evil things, of, of, of sorcery, of witchcraft, of things that very often they don't even, they see it as a benign thing. They don't really mean nothing by it. But, you know, everything the devil offers you seems benign at first. And, People get into those things. It's so funny, man. People go and they spend all this money with fortune tellers and, and, and horoscopes and tarot cards and all this. And you know the Bible tells them exactly whether or not that works. You know the Bible says that no man knoweth what a day may bring forth. That's true of all of us. If you spend your time trying to orchestrate your life best upon uh, reading the future and determining the odds, guess what? You're going to run around and you're going to be like a termite in a yo-yo. You're never going to get it figured out. He tried to determine and discern the, the, he tried to discern the future. He tried to figure out what was going to happen. And the fact is, he didn't learn anything more than what he learned before. Think about the fact that he abandoned his post. He left his post, Brother Ken, and he didn't know anything more than what he set out to know in, and, and already knew in the first place. How many times do we, do we abandon the will and the work of God based upon fears and anxieties and worries that belong to a future that no man can possibly know? Bible says you cannot add to your stature an inch that you cannot add a, a hair to your head that a leopard uh, can't change uh, his spots. Uh, it's impossible uh, to uh, change anything by worrying, by fretting. I understand we all worry from time to time in life, but I'm saying this worry, I said it the other day, worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it really don't take you anywhere. And how often have we walked away from the will and and the potential of God. I'm talking about the potential of God. I'm talking about God wanted to do something big. But we got hung up on all the possibles. I said we got hung up on all of the possibles. We, we allowed our fear to dominate us. And left our seat empty when we could have just trusted God with the whole situation. So I, I see he tried to discern the future. And then this is really what he was trying to do. He was trying to determine. He was trying to control. He was trying to dictate the future. He said, if I know what Saul's going to do, I'll be ready for him. You know, funny thing about it, 
Later on, David does escape from Saul's hand, but you know what happens? He winds up leaving there and getting into worse shape. He spends some time living amongst the Philistines and finds himself marching into battle on behalf of the Lord's enemies at the head of a Philistine army. Uh, He finds himself uh, doing all kinds of things worse than death. Worse, I said worse than death. I said doing all kinds of things that were unthinkable, unimaginable, that become stains upon his testimony. All because he was running from something that he never even knew, whether it was merely a ghost, an apparition, a figment of his imagination, or something that was substantive. You know, he was trying to control the future. It's a fool's errand to try to control the future. Listen, it's like trying to, it's like trying to hug a mountain. It's like trying to scoop in the ocean. You'll never get it done. You'll pull one handful in over here and it'll just push out the other end. It will not matter. I remember a story one time, an illustration, a preacher told it, but he said he was watching the news back when Katrina happened and, uh, and he saw this, you know, all the flooding down in in Louisiana and everything. Said he saw this little old woman uh, sitting out, standing out on her front porch and the ocean water had come up and and was over the top of her porch and just maybe like a, a half an inch deep. But, but she was standing there and she had a mop in her hands and she was trying to mop the ocean out of her front door. And every time she'd mop, mop a swipe out, there'd just be more ocean behind it. That's how futile of an effort it is to try to think that we can master the future and master our destiny. You know what we ought to do instead? Just put our hand in the hand of the one that holds tomorrow. The one that knows exactly what's going to happen. You and I, we have to guess about tomorrow, but God, He's already on the other side of tomorrow and He knows what's going to happen. He knows what's going to take place. I'm not saying it's not human to worry, but I sure enough am saying it's divine to trust Him and to just say, hey, listen, God, I know you have this in control. Here's what He did. He tried to discern the future and He tried to dictate the future. So here's what He did instead. He diminished the future. He eventually winds up on the throne But boy, imagine, imagine what God could have done with that situation. Can I just tell you? Can I, well, we all, I've got what they call an overactive imagination. I've been scolded about that ever since I was a little kid. Uh, And my boys got the same, uh, same type of, but can I just use my, my sanctified imagination for a moment? Can you imagine what would have happened if God had instead, instead of having to destroy Saul, imagine what if God in His mercy and grace and infinite power had through David changed the heart of King Saul in such a way that Saul would have been willing to abdicate the throne himself and to see David sat upon the throne and for Saul himself to bend the knee before God's king and for that family to be able to go forth and go on. Listen, imagine what God could have done. God could have kept the two kingdoms united forever. You remember later... Later on, whenever Jeroboam launches an insurrection against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, you remember what he says? He says about the ten tribes, we have no part in Jesse. We have no part in David. That rift that took place between Saul and between David bore out for generation after generation. Hey, I'd tell you this, there sure wouldn't have been a broken man down in Lodabar that could only be lifted out of it by spectacular grace and mercy. Imagine all that could have been done different if David had just stayed in his seat where God had placed him. He diminished the future. Did God do good out of it? Well, sure, God does. God takes everything. Every mistake that we make, God takes them through His grace, makes it better than what it would have been under our strength and under our administration. But I'm saying, here's what David did. He traded a greater future for a lesser future by trading it for his future. He said, I'm going to work my skills. I'm going to work my schemes. I'm going to work my plans. And can I tell you something? Your plans, good as they may be, they may be better than my plans. They may be better than everybody else's plans. But your plan, no matter how airtight it is, is not as good as God's plan. What God has for you is greater than what you could ever have for yourself. It's greater than what I could wish for you. And I'm just telling you this. If we'll just go ahead and trust God's plan, we'll find that it's exactly what we need it to be. So I thought to myself, you know, he really, it was because of the sin of others. He got his eyes off of, off of the Lord and on those that were sinning. And then it was because of scheming. It was because he tried to take matters into his own hand. But then I think there was another reason. And I want to be, I want to be careful in how I preach. I, I want to preach this in, in the right way and I want you to understand me. But I'd say this. I'd say his seat was empty because of self-interest, Brother Charlie. He got to caring more about himself than he did anything else. He got Brother Larry thinking to himself, you know, I ain't just going to sit here and wait on Saul to kill me. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to do something about it. I, the other day I read this, and I can't remember where I read it, but uh, it was a missionary telling, it was a missionary quoting a book is what it was, but uh, telling about 
a woman that was serving as a missionary in Africa. And um, she had gone to work amongst a colony of lepers in Africa. And she had labored amongst them uh, for a, a, a number of years. And she was out there ministering in the lepers' colony uh, one day. And, and it began to grow dark. And, and before she knew it, it, it was not time. And she had to make her way back to her own residence, her own home place. But there had been word come that there were dangerous beasts, that there had been, uh, you know, buffalo and lion and all kinds of things, water buffalo that had been roaming around out there. And, and, and the tribes people, they begged her not to go. They said, it's too dangerous. You cannot go back. Uh, you'll wind up being, being hurt. You'll wind up being killed. But she said, I can't stay here. I've got to go back. I have responsibilities. And this lady, she told the story of an old man, an old tribesman who had gotten saved and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and leprosy had ravaged his body. And uh, she said that, that that old tribesman stood up and got his walking stick and hobbled over beside her and got ready for the journey. And she looked over at this man and she said, Sir, what are you doing? And he said, Well, ma'am, if you're going to go, then I'm going to go with you. I'm not going to let you go by yourself. She sort of laughed and chuckled to herself. She looked at this broken form, missing a hand, missing part of uh, of a foot, missing uh, you know a, a nose, missing just ravaged by this disease of leprosy. And here's what she thought to herself. She thought to herself, "What could he do to protect me?" She looked at the man and said, "Sir, you're so kind, and I appreciate your willingness to go." But if we went out there, it's, it's possible that if we were attacked, I'd be able to get away, but you can't move as fast as me. And, and what would you do then? And she said, I really appreciate it, but I'm not sure that, that you're able to keep me safe. You're liable to die out there. And here's what he said. He looked at her and he said, Have not I a life to give? Have not I a life to give? Here's what he was saying. He was saying, I know I'm not much. But even I can give my life in the service of God. I may not be much, but if I can't do it, here's, here's what he's saying. He was saying, if I could give my life in making myself pray to some beast, and it allowed you as a missionary to get away and go on in the work of God, he was saying, my life will have been well spent. It is amazing. Lord, help me. You know, there's worse things in our life. There's worse things in our life than physical harm and death and those things. And I'm not saying we should not be wise. Please hear me. I'm not saying that we should not be wise. But I am saying this, you know, for all of society, we raised, there was a generation of men that founded our country that believed that there were worse things than death. They believed to live under tyranny was worse than death. And I'm saying we've lived in such relative comfort for so long and We've grown to worship the, the miracles of modern medicine, of which I'm very grateful. Praise God that He uses that. But I'm just saying this, listen, for us to make shipwreck of our lives and for us to waste it away at never having meant anything for the cause of Christ, that's a fate worse than death. Have not I a life to give? What David began to do, he got to think to himself, I ain't going to sit around and wait here, wait on Saul to kill me. I'm going to get up and I'm going to do something about it. You know, I thought about this trade, this change, this prioritization that took place. And I thought this, number one, you know what I thought? David, he prioritized his comfort over God's calling. Must have been a hard thing to live in that palace day in, day out. Must have been a hard thing to live under the eyes of an angry king at all times. Probably, he, he said, you know, the Bible talks about the book Proverbs. David's son made this statement and said, said he, he said, it's better to dwell on a rooftop than in a corner with a brawling woman. In other words, he was saying this, that listen, there ain't no house big enough for discord. There ain't no house big enough for conflict. I said, there's no house big enough for conflict. Listen, if you lived in a house bigger than the state of Tennessee, but there's conflict there, then mark her down, it'll feel like a small place. You know, it must have been hard for David to live under those conditions. And I think he finally got to a place where he said, you know, I just ain't going to live this way anymore. I don't care what God has for me. I'm going to go to some place where I can enjoy some quiet and some comfort. You know, some people leave the seat because they find that the seat is often a place of sacrifice. It is often a place of discomfort. It's often a place where the path that we walk is not a path that we would have chosen for ourselves. And sometimes just out of mere comfort, and let me use this word, and convenience, people will leave the seat, the place 
that God has them, the work that God has them doing, the will of God for their life. Can I tell you, it's, it's a lot easier to leave than it is to get to the place that we were before we left. I'm talking about spiritually. I said I'm talking about spiritually. I'm saying we're going along serving God, living for God. If we leave that seat, if we leave that place of dedication, if we allow ourselves to be lured away from that place of communion and fellowship with the Lord, it's a lot harder to get back than it was to walk away. You know, it would have been harder for David to get back into the palace after he left, wouldn't it? And you know, he never did get back in the palace. Uh, he, he never did go back in until one day he was crowned king. You see, when he left that seat, he just walked away. He, he, he prioritized comfort over God's calling. And number two, and I, I'll be done tonight. I believe the Lord's done. He prioritized his own peace over God's plan. He wanted Brother Ken to be able to sleep in peace and quiet, to not have to worry, to not have to deal with the battle. I say serving God is a battle sometimes. Sometimes it's a battle. You think the devil ain't going to fight you trying to live for God? You think there's not going to be times that it's not... I believe in spiritual warfare. I said, I believe in spiritual warfare. You hearing me tonight? We say, we all say we do. But then when the battle comes, we're just plumb shocked that anybody would try to stop us from doing something for God. I said, I believe in spiritual warfare. And sometimes it's, there's going to be times it's going to be easier to just walk away than it is to stay in your seat. I hope that we all... And I hope you understand what my heart and the tenor of the message is. I ain't talking about pews. I ain't talking about a church house. I'm talking about living for God. I'm talking about staying dedicated to Him. I'm talking about staying, staying righteous in our walk with Him, staying close to Him. I'm talking about making our life count for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm saying don't abandon your seat tonight. Instead, commit to yourself, I'm here for a reason. God's got me living for Him and doing what I'm doing for a reason. Let that resolve be strong. I have a responsibility here. There's a work and a calling that I can commit myself to that no one else can fill my shoes. And I'm not going to abandon that just because things get a little rough. Or I'm not going to abandon that just because I'm disappointed in the way somebody else lives. Or I'm not going to abandon it just because I see people not doing and not being and not living the way that I, I think they ought to be. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my responsibility. And let us say this tonight. Listen, I don't know what lay ahead for me, but I do know this. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to rely upon Him. I'm going to trust Him because He's trust. I'm not going to trust Him because it's easy, because it ain't always easy. I'm going to trust Him because He's trustworthy. I'm going to trust Him because He's never let anybody down. I'm going to trust Him because He has never let anyone down. And He's not going to start with me. I think we ought to commit that no matter what, we may not be much, but our seat won't be empty. We're going to keep on going for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. If God has touched your heart in any way, then I just want you to obey Him and respond to Him, whatever He may have dealt with you about this evening. Father, bless this invitation. Lord, I love you tonight. I thank you for the privilege to be able to spend a little time in your Word. I, I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to respond appropriately, obediently to the truth of thy Word. And may we commit ourselves afresh and anew unto you that we might be found where you'd have us to be. Lord, I love you. And I ask it in Jesus' name with our heads bowed.